This is Geek Gab with your host, John and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, September 29th, 2018. And I had to stop myself as I was about to say that because I had to, re I had to think. I had to think for just a quick, quick fraction of a second. What year is this? Is this still 2018? No, no, it's 2018. We're not 2019 yet. Okay. Okay. Well, let's go with that. I'm hoping that it didn't come out wrong. Welcome to the show, everybody. Um, I have some big news, some breaking news. A few weeks ago, I, your host, was out in the middle of the boonies at a large get-together, and then I had to drive an hour to get back in range of a telephone so that I could do the show uh, back in range of a cell tower so I could do the show on my cell phone. And completely coincidentally, my fellow host, Dornall, is in point of fact uh, doing the show also on his phone today. So, hey, how are things going, man? Hey, I'm doing great. I uh, I I had vacation this week, and I've been at a cabin in the woods by the majestic, dormant volcano, Mount Rainier. Hanging out with a big crew of gamers. We've been hanging out, eating food, playing board games for the past two days. In fact, I actually forgot it was Saturday. I needed a I needed a reminder. I'm thankful that we've got good Wi-Fi at the cabin so I didn't have to drive an hour. But it's a beautiful day, beautiful countryside. and uh, But I'm inside right now hanging out because I wanted to chat with my good friends, DW and John Delaraz. How's it going, man? So what kind of games have you been playing this weekend? Uh, the t type of board games that tickle my fancy, a little take a little bit of time and a little thought. My favorite game right now is called Terraforming Mars. Oh, I love that game. That's a good game. And we've talked it's about that before. Um, we're we're going to have to play some time. We're going to have to play some time. It's it's a it's a strategy game with a big pile of cards and the the premise of the game is that every player is a big corporation and we're trying to terraform Mars. And there's a lot of moving parts, but playing it is really easy. Um, and the, the fun part of the game is you've got all these cool, um, you've got all these cool projects that you can fund that'll help terraform Mars, or maybe you're not going to help terraforming Mars and you're just going to get a bunch of points uh, doing scientific research or something like that. It sounds super nerdy, but it's got great uh, humor, great art, uh, and it's genuinely fun to play. Really um, good, like on the strategic, like resource management side of things too. Exactly, the resource management is is really powerful there because you you have to make really tough decisions every turn, which uh, what what cards you're going to play and what actions you're going to take, and it really rewards you planning your turn out. You say, I, I think I want to do these two things, and that's it. And like any really good board game. There's 20 things that you can do. So the challenge is figuring out the one or two things that you really need to do. Uh, plus, 
and I'm going to spoil this for anybody who hasn't played. Uh, everybody should know that Mars has two moons. Well, one of the moons you can build a city on, and the other moon you can slam into the surface of the planet to generate greenhouse gases and uh, valuable metals. Yeah. I had a quick procedural question because you're on the phone and I realize you can't see the group chat and you also can't see the YouTube chat. So, you know, I'm kind of keeping an eye out on that. Um, do you know your camera's on? Yeah. Okay. Hey, just checking. All right, all right. Did you mention that because we're getting complaints? Um, yes, actually, we have a we have a uh, an entire um, one of those uh, signature sites has been set up. Um, you know, to ask the White House to to have you turn off your camera. I just I, I don't I don't know how effective that's going to be, but apparently that is in there. I, just, I wanted set to do... set up a White House petition. We'll sign it. <laughs> what? Uh... Um, I, well, I wanted you to see how, how uh, where I am. It's a beautiful cabin. I'm inside right now. I'm not going to show you all the. I, I, I'm not going to show you all the trees. I'm point you at the window. This is what I'm dealing with. I don't know if y'all can see that, but Jeffra wants to know if you're uh, if you want to reveal your face. I'm getting the I'm getting the impression he's asking uh, because of like a security concern or something. I don't know. I have no security concerns or anything like that. I've been my my identity has been known for a long time. I use um, the thing about my my um, username Dornal is that it doesn't mean anything. It's it's just a unique name. I used it for a D and D character a million years ago, but um, it's it's effectively a self dox. Uh, I I am Dornal. Wherever you look on the internet, that's me. So. Um, Here's my face. Here's my face. I wanted to I mention turn on, I, quick. I can turn on my camera and show everybody the uh, the kale berry protein shake I'm making. I don't, I don't think anybody's excited by that, but you know, if you want to, go for it. <laughs> um, I did want to talk about something strange before we actually get officially going with with John because I found it so so strange. Um, Lindsay Lohan. Uh, who is in Europe, live-streamed on the internet herself following a family at night, trying to take the children away from the parents, and then she got slapped or punched by the mom uh, and then went off crying about how terrifying the whole, the whole thing was. I, I don't have a big position. I mean, I could get up on a soapbox and talk about how narcissistic Hollywood stars are and they only exist in their own little world or how fame makes you into a narcissist, even if you're not, because you're so insulated from like regular people. All you spend time with is other famous people um, because otherwise it gets really weird. I could uh, I could talk about a lot of things like that, but I, I just, I, I read the story and I was like, what the hell? I don't have a point. I'm just like, what the hell? Uh, can I get a what the hell from y'all? <laughs> was there was there was there any onus to her? Why did it, was there any uh, context to why she was following them around doing that? Or like she, apparently they're uh, Middle Eastern, and she thought they were, or or she thought they were. She thought that they were um, 
She accused them of child trafficking uh, and told the kids to come with her. She shot, thought that the two kids that they had, they were uh, engaged in human trafficking with the kids. It's I mean, I guess, that, I guess, I guess that's a valid reason for vigilante justice. But I mean, you better, you better prove that, you know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, were the, were the kids adopted? Did they not look like they were ch the children of the parents, or what? I haven't, I haven't watched the video. I, I have secondhand accounts of the video. Uh, because I mean, yeah, that, I mean, if it's if it's if it's Middle Easterns and it was a couple little black kids, I think maybe that's a stretch. But yeah, I just, anyways. I, I actually was wasting my time before the show not watching this video, but watching a PBS video about the crisis in math. I, again, I know I did that three weeks ago and it like ruined the opener of the show because uh, I was just all up thinking about the golden ratio and stuff. And, and, you know, but I got that out of my system. We talked about math for like 10 minutes before the show began. Math and physics and... Uh, things like that. So I got that out of my system so we could come here on the show. Uh, Math and, and, and Lindsay Lohan, that's what we're here for today. Yeah, it is. It is. That is the unique the unique mix you get when you tune into Geek Gab is you have no idea what we're going to talk about. That That's actually death, by the way. That is absolute death on YouTube. If you notice that, all the people who are very successful on YouTube, they have a theme to their channel. They have one thing that they do, and they do it well, and they concentrate on that. So you go to this channel for guys doing crazy shots with bows, and you go to another channel for people talking about medieval weaponry, and you go to another channel because they're comics reviews. If you want to be successful, uh, and, and the same thing also applies to literature, to publishing, like if you're writing books, you focus on one thing and you, and you focus on that so that people can go to you and they reliably know what they're going to get. Bernie I'm very Fox, bad at that. <laughs> Bernie bots every flavored beans in the real world would have a big problem um, because, you know, normal people wouldn't wouldn't want to buy something. They have no idea what they're going to eat, what it's going to taste like. I mean, would you would you buy a candy that has like a, a, a not insignificant chance of tasting like vomit? Yeah. <laughs> so. Oh yeah, my brother tried to put that shit on me before. That was yeah. terrible. Yeah. That almost hey, he warned me too. He said, "He warned me too." He said, "Hey, John, eat this crap." And I said, "No, why would I? Why would I risk that?" What's not What's not terrible? Terrible is my frozen organic cherry, strawberry, blueberry, and kale mix. It's just good stuff, guys. I, you know, I know why it was evil. When I found out that it's in the same, it's the same plant, it's the same species as broccoli and cabbage and kale. They're the same plant. It's all the same plant. It, it's, it's all, all the same plant. Cabbage, broccoli, flower, Brussels sprouts. I think right. here, here's the blender. Here's the blender right here. If you guys can see it. It's, uh, so this is, uh, so it's my mix of berries there. I've got um, flaxseed. Um, hemp seed, chia seed, uh, coconut shreds, uh, bananas, and almond milk. Uh, in addition to this, uh, this mix, and, and this is this is, and then a, a little uh, little protein uh, powder also. So that's that's what I'm eating for lunch. I, I felt better about myself when I realized I could recognize pure evil in its in its most, uh, you know, its its most disguised form when I hit that pure evil of of knowing the fortune. Okay, so. 
By the way, folks, if you haven't figured it out, our guest today is John De La Rose, and uh, he has two comic books out that have sort of a loose fire thing going on. There's Ember War, because embers come off a campfire, and there's also Flying Sparks, because sparks fly off a campfire, and I'm wondering... Uh, was 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 that sort of thematic link there? Was was that deliberate on your part? Crap! Um, now now your I'm realizing are that on I, fire is 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 the, <laughs> the tagline I used. Your comics are That's on beautiful. fire. He's, yeah, he's, and, on, and he's I, on Twitter right now, changing his username to put fire emojis in it. <laughs> <laughs> or, I also, or maybe, I also put, Maybe your comics are literally that. on fire because the people who hate you are buying them and burning them. I mean, is that happening? I would love to see that because that you know that'd be the best promotional tool I could ever have in my whole life. <laughs> um, but uh, no, total accident. And I, I realized after you said that that um, I just wrapped up writing a novel called Alt Hero, and uh, one of my one of my characters uh, actually shoots fire from his eyes, and his name's Firestarter. Um, and, uh, so I, I apparently just do this in every single book because I, I guess I'm like a Beavis and Butthead kind of guy going fire, fire. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> so let's, let's do with flying sparks first. Um, that came out what a month ago. Yeah. On Indiegogo, it actually hasn't, it hasn't hit, uh, shelves yet. So people haven't seen it. Um, is but, that, is it still for sale? Can people still buy it on Indiegogo? Yeah. Uh, that's that's part of why I chose Indiegogo rather than Kickstarter was because you can put up a store online uh, that just keeps selling the book afterwards. So I cut off all the T-shirt and posters so we could just do a run of that. And then I've, I've, I'm going to have it up. Basically, I, I did a pretty large print run was why I wanted to do this because it's not exactly the same as putting books up on Amazon where it's all print on demand. I actually, actually printed a thousand books. So it's like I can just keep that up there until I sell them and just keep shipping them, which is nice. Um, by the way, folks, I have, uh, and this should not surprise you, being the general run of the show, I have links to both Ember War and Flying Sparks right now underneath the video. So you can go check those out uh, right now or at the end of the movie or, you know, whenever. And buy the Ember War first because that still needs to fund. So if you're, if you're doing one, that's the one to go for right now. Oh, and that's something I wanted to talk about. Not necessarily right now. So that was actually the one subject that's kind of inside baseball that I want to pound the table about. You know, every single show, it tends to run into some kind of subject I actually wanted to pound the table about anyway, and we just accidentally have a an opportunity that comes up. But I wanted yeah, that's, to a, that's an interesting point. Is, are you talking about having multiple, uh, juggling multiple uh, Kickstarter, Indiegogo crowdfunding campaigns at the same time? I, I wanted to pound the table about how Indiegogo is not a long-term sustainable model for alternative comics. Um, not I mean, right now necessarily, but I want to get to that. I, it's not just comics. I think the whole thing is interesting. I think uh, aren't we seeing uh, crowdfunding fatigue in just about everything? Uh, crowdfunding is really popular for uh, board games as well, and uh, you get some really high quality stuff coming out. But just uh, people realize that they're they're dropping one, two, three hundred dollars on games all the time, and you just can't keep up with all the amazing stuff coming out. Yes. So, anyways, but let's talk about Flying Sparks, your very first comic. Uh, available for sale now on Indiegogo at the link below the video. And uh, the theme of Flying Sparks was a hero and a villain falling in love. Oh, yeah. 
my favorite my favorite moments in comics over history were basically like Spider-Man and Mary Jane or Batman and Catwoman. Not 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 the Tom King stuff that Daddy Warpig wrote an article about a couple months ago, but just just the overall Batman Catwoman relationship, things like that. I, I think when you add the superhero drama and the the lying that necessarily you have to do to your partner and things like that, it, it adds such a level of complexity to the characters and into the story that it it just really lifts the storyline overall in terms of drama and in terms of uh, like, you know, just, just high tension conflict. So I, I just wanted to have a book that's about that all the time. So um, I have been told or have heard that scripting for comics is a very, very difficult thing and that you have to be very, very, very parsimonious with your words, even more so than a short story. Um, was Flying Sparks your first comic script? Um, no, I wrote a few short comics ahead of time um, that, that I just kind of trained myself to do it with. I did a Western where, you know, it was, a, it was just a cowboy tying up a villain and, you know, winning. And then I had a samurai story where it was just, you know, a duel across a bridge, you know, classic samurai style, just, just so I can get my, uh, get, get a feel for doing things. I don't have the art for those anymore. So I have no idea. I don't even know what happened to them. I think, I think I lost them on a computer years and years and years ago, unfortunately, but I started there. Uh, but flying sparks was my first full length graphic novel, you know, sort of ongoing superhero concept. And it's still really the only ongoing story I've attempted to write. I mean, I've, I've got the Ember War now, which is a, a five issue thing, but that's, that is a complete story right there. Like Flying Sparks, I'm really intending on just being a superhero universe in the old pulp style that you can just keep going with and keep going with and keep going with. And each issue kind of has its own storyline to it, but it also develops the character a little bit. You know, that's, that's the stuff in the sixties and seventies that made Marvel and DC kind of charming that, you know, that, that kind of we lost today a little bit. And also, um, I don't know, it, it's just, you don't get that a lot in indie comics either because people, people write to the trade paperback now. So do you have uh, plans for publishing another uh, volume after this? Oh yeah, I've been mentioning that uh, for a while. So I've already got volume two done. Uh, the part, of, part of this uh, crowdfund was just I wanted to see if there was a market out there, um, and then I I, uh, I had to I had to redo a lot of my dialogue because I wrote this back in 2012, and I'm a much better writer now than I was in 2012. So I'd, I had to redo my dialogue, pay for my lettering, get a nice cover on it, um, and and then do the print run. And so I wanted to do that, see if there was a market for it. But now it's uh, now it's gone a lot further than I expected it to. So um, I'm getting the dialogue redone for volume two and covering all that also. Um, so I don't know when I'm going to launch that or how I'm going to launch that yet, uh, but it'll definitely be within the next year. Um, uh, do you plan on, so it sounds like that's just a, that's, you know, a pet project you've been working on for years and years and years. Uh, now that you've measured the sort of um, gauge, the demand and the success that you've had, do you plan on creating a regular comic, like a weekly or monthly sort of thing? Um, I think it's a little too hard to do and still have a day job to have a, have a completely weekly or monthly thing at this point. Um, the management of the process and all that's a lot. Um, and artists are also very slow. 
Um, so I would say my artist takes about two to two and a half months to do one issue. Um, I hate to interrupt you, John. Um, you are breaking up really, really, really badly. I want to uh, the art. Oh, no, I thought that was... I can break it up. Hold on just a sec, then. You guys talk. <laughs> I think it's all the kale. I think it's it's gummed up his internet. The kale. It, it, it wrecks things around it, even secondhand. Uh, usually when things like this happen, though, it's like uh, somebody else started download on the, uh, on the internet or, you know, whatever. It just... Is that better? My, my internet's actually in good shape, so I'm kind of confused. We have no idea why it happened. You just... All of a sudden, started dropping out. So it, it, may, it, may, not it may not have been us. It may have been uh, infrastructure uh, in your area, or you know what? It could just be the curse of the geek gab. Um, All right. Well, there's a lot Bur going on. <laughs> I, I'm I'm definitely not able to do a monthly comic with it at this time, uh, just because I, I have a day job. My artist kind of has a day job, so that that. Uh, but we would love to get there eventually. Uh, and one of the things that uh, diversity in comics has made a point about is that um, when comics were a monthly thing and they were selling well and people could move through them, the art was a lot simpler than it tends to be today. And and I believe that the modern art definitely looks a lot better and it's great. It's eye candy. It's pure eye candy to get a comic book with that highly detailed art. But if the price of that highly detailed art is that you can't actually support an industry and you can't actually support a monthly comic and it's too high a price to pay. And in, in many instances, the more the simpler coloring specifically really added a lot to uh, panel layout and how you made certain things pop and certain other things were seen in the background and and it made the uh, action scenes uh, have more impact and it made dramatic events have more impact because all the background stuff that you needed to, there for context but wasn't super important um, was in one color and then the active stuff was in a couple of other colors and so despite the fact that as pieces of art, modern comics, as detailed as they've been drawn since, you know, let's say since the image area or era or just immediately before that, it makes it impossible to sustain a monthly comic. Uh, and so that's something I think that the industry is gonna have to grapple with, but they're not going to because they're concerned about other things. Yeah, you're 100% right. Um, it's, it's definitely, it definitely puts a hamper on things because you, you lose the consistency when you have to rotate artists or whatever. Um, and I, I'm choosing just to, you know, do the same storyline with one artist as he can do it. But uh, that, then you lose, then you lose the sort of binge people who want to tune in every month. Right. I mean, so, so you, there is a, a back and forth sort of trade off there. And the only answer is to do something a little more simply, but that's, that's why you see things like, you know, control alt delete and penny you know penny arcade and uh you know things like that get such high followings because they they're able to do it every day and, and put it up there every day so there's something to tune into every day and it becomes a habit um yeah, that's a tough business I, I wouldn't want to be in that business to put something out every day or, or every other day yeah I'd um, burn out he, uh, especially <laughs> 
I'm glad you mentioned the web comics because not only do you burn out, but I mean, uh, the web comics, uh, we, we lost quality a long time ago, especially Penny Arcade is probably the best example. You know, quality of jokes were, were always, you know, webcomic quality. And, it, uh, and after a few years, they just lost it. And they keep putting stuff out every, every week. And, and in my opinion, it's barely readable anymore. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't read the same thing. Did you, I, same thing. Did you ever, um, did you ever read what uh, Bill Watterson had to say about comics? He called the he called the the funny pages uh, a comics graveyard. Uh, all these comics uh, is just it was dead comics that had long since sort of finished telling all the jokes that you could tell in that in their format. Stuff like BC or Beetle Bailey and or Garfield especially, uh, and they yeah. just keep going, and and that's why he quit early. Yeah, I mean it becomes a thing. I mean Scott Adams still has to draw Dilbert every day. You know, it's like um, it it definitely stifles your creativity. I think after a while to, to do any one thing, but that you know that's that's the true of any that's true of anything. I mean, if you look at um, I'll, I'll just use Anne McCaffrey's Dragon Riders of Pern because she's no longer alive and, you know, I can't actually hurt her business at this point. Um, and she's also my favorite author. She, uh, you know, the first few Pern books were like just like fabulous. And then then she kind of went off into different concepts and to different time periods and things like that and told some interesting things. But by the end of her life, it was, oh, well, we have a contract for another Pern book and you better put one out because this is this is the moneymaker. We don't care about your other books. And she just kept having to do it. And you, you see this, I mean, same thing with, uh, you know, David Weber and the Honorverse, right? He, he keeps having to like kind of do that and kind of keep it in that vein over and over. So if you look at comic strips and, and Garfield and Dilbert or wherever, you know, that's the same creative rut where it's not creative for them anymore because they're forced within a, a certain format. And uh, I don't, you know, I mean, I can't help that because readers readers want more of the familiar that they love and that makes sense. And I don't, I don't, there's nothing wrong with that per se, but, uh, but that's what, that's why I'm all over the map with like doing 50,000 different things. Cause I, I just want to have fun ideas all the time and not be stuck in a rut. I think that's the exact same thing that has blighted Adam Sandler movies. People wonder, they say, well, why is Adam Sandler got so bad? Adam Sandler got so bad because he made comic movies, comedy movies, and they were very, very successful. He made a lot of money for himself and for other people, producers and, and whatnot. And then he wanted to transition to doing not just full comedy, but also drama. And it turns out he's actually a good drama actor. He can pull off drama, but... Um, he didn't make a lot of money at it. And nobody wanted to cast him in a drama. He couldn't get cast in dramatic roles in Hollywood. And so if you don't have scripts, if you don't have people willing to pay you to come on and be in their drama, then, then you're kind of screwed. And so he has been forced to go back into comedy and keep on remaking the same style of movies he was making 20, 30 years ago. Uh, and he is Bored, and he's so bored, and you could see it on his face. Uh, he just he has to do this because it's like his career, and he needs to keep on making money. But he's much, much better than the material he's been given, and he doesn't have an opportunity to actually do that. And that's why his movies are bad, because he's getting lazy about them. He just puts them together, throws them out, and uh, if they make more money than they cost to make, then it's a success, and he's kind of trapped. Yeah, and you're you're kind of you're kind of forced with that choice as an artist where it's like you can do the thing that made you popular on repeat 
and and still make some money and have people gripe about it in your board and and a lot of the people who are actually looking for different story concepts are also bored or you can choose to just kind of like I'm going to be the full on artist and and I'm I'm just going to do what I want uh that it's hard to do an in between you know <laughs> I, you don't you don't see a lot of that Christopher Nolan managed it for like six movies um because he had to um where he would, you know, he made Batman Begins, and it was so super popular that they said, okay, we want you to come back and make The Dark Knight. And he's like, okay, but if you want me to do that, I also get to make this weird little indie, bizarre dream movie I've had an, uh, an idea for it. I've been working on it for a decade, and the the, the movie uh, studio was like, okay, fine, we'll let you do it. And all of a sudden, it's a, you know, that too, his weird little passion side project made 200 million dollars and everybody's like oh okay and then he does the dark knight and then um the dark knight rises and then interstellar and so he got lucky that his weird artistic stuff was also fabulously successful but even that there isn't a there isn't a direction to go in in that world that right you can have a sequel to it so it's done he's over and he's done which is admirable um i love that movie i'd love 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 inception but uh and he doesn't have to make sequels to it even despite the fact that it was a huge success i remember ben affleck had a line i think it was in jay and silent bob strikes back when it was like you do the safe flick then you do the arty flick then you do the safe flick then you do the arty flick and every once in a while you do the film for a friend and and then he, and then he breaks the fourth wall and looks at the camera that was like one of the funniest moments <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was hilarious that might have been uh, the last good film that uh, Silent Bob did. Yeah, it was for sure. Um, all right, so let's let's talk about your other comic here, um, which again, Ember War. There's a link to the Indiegogo where you can buy it in the uh, in the description below. Um, what's up with that? <laughs> what's up with oh, that? Yeah, yeah, it's kind it's, of. A, it's... <laughs> Those are the penetrating and insightful questions our audience comes to this show for. They know that they are going to get not just a host who sits there as, as a throws softball questions at a guest. They know they're going to get hard-hitting and insightful questions like that. Proud, <laughs> proud of this show like that. Who I I really feel the pressure now. Um. <laughs> The uh, the Ember War kind of came about. I, I mean, I've I was doing that Flying Sparks thing with with Jethro, my artist, for years. And what what I did is I just set aside a hundred bucks out of my paycheck, like every month or whatever, and he just did a page or two while while I was well, you know, I had the script done. So it's you know, it stopped being like you know, you're really excited about an idea when it comes out, and then and then it's like uh, you know, two years later when you're still getting it made because it because it took that long because art's so expensive. It's not that exciting anymore. It's just like, but but I kept doing it for a long time. I don't know why I kept at it, uh, but I did. But I've always loved comics, right? So eventually I was like, okay, I've got a following now and I want to make a comic and I want to do this. And the alt, that alt-hero campaign last year was just so big that I was like, okay. So I was actually planning on doing something like, like these back then. And I thought... Well, gosh, I want to do this, and so so I started brainstorming uh, with Vox Day, and I was like, "What should I do?" And uh, Vox is like, "Well, you know, you've got you've got a small following, but it's not, you know, it's not. I don't think it's big enough to sustain like comic art because I know how much comic art is is very expensive." And this is before all this. I didn't know Flying Sparks was going to be a success. I I really thought Flying Sparks would make 
six, $8,000 and barely cover the art costs, not even cover the print costs, but I'd already paid for the art anyway. Like that's, that's what I was expecting, right? Um, and I expected this all along. So I, we were like, well, what if we can, what if we can like marry my work with like somebody big in the Amazon world's work and like do something big? And uh, that sort of came about. And Richard Fox was up against me in for the Dragon Award for military science fiction last year. And he was a guy, and I, I, I had no idea who he was. And suddenly, and I, I thought, you know, these guys are going to all split, and I've got my split their audience, and I've got my own audience, and uh, I, I'm going to win that, win this Dragon Award handily. I was all, I was all smug about it. And uh, th then Richard Fox just kicked my butt. <laughs> he, he got a lot more votes than me by far. Um, and it, I was like, who is this guy? Um, and so I added him on Facebook because I'm, I'm prone. I'm prone to do that. <laughs> and uh, I just started talking to him. And it turns out like he's one, he's a, just a great guy. And we have a ton in common, uh, which is cool. And then I read his book and I was like, wow, he's actually he writes these like epic military science fiction books like like that are that are like basically movies like this could be this could be formatted into a movie and i told him this and we just started talking over a couple months you know in tandem with you know what i'm what comic should i do vox what comic should i do vox on the other side and you know i i eventually asked him the question i'm like well have you ever thought about making your books into a comic and he goes yeah i'd love to and he goes I have no idea how to go about doing that. And I'm like, well, I know how to do that. <laughs> and that's literally how it started. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're doing the adaptation. You're taking his books and adapting it to comic form. Right. How much input does he have over what comes out in the script? Um, he's, he's basically acting as editor. So, I, um, I, I, I originally broke it down and I told them, okay, I, this book, th this, this has been a, such a challenge, like creatively, because it's been a different, it's been a very different thing than I than I've ever done because it is taking somebody else's trying to be faithful to it, trying to change its medium. So it works. Um, and, and yet, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned, uh, having to have dialogue that's very short and all that, like, you know, in books, we're so used to people having like sprawling speeches and back and forth dialogue. And it's just people talking back and forth about events so much. You can't do that at all in comics. Um, <laughs> so, so there are challenges there, but he actually wrote a pretty action oriented piece. So, so thankfully I had that. I talked to Chuck Dixon on this, um, you know, when I started getting going on it because uh, he adapted the wheel of time. And I was like, so you, how'd you adapt that? And he goes, that was just a train wreck because the wheel of time, you have no idea how hard of a book that is to adapt. <laughs> and I thought about it and I'm like, wow, yeah, I guess these thousand pages sprawling where, you know, you only get action in like 50 of those pages would be very oh, hard. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and Jordan loved to have his, his characters act in idiosyncratic ways. And, and there's lots of nonverbal communication in those books that that sounds like a nightmare. Yeah, he, he said it was basically a nightmare. And uh, he's like, so I don't have great advice for that. And I'm like, oh, okay, thanks. Um, but I, <laughs> don't adapt the wheel of time. That's good advice. Don't adapt the wheel of time. So. Don't adapt the wheel of time. Mark that down, folks. I like that story. We're like, so so I, I sent a message to, you know, one of the most uh, well-known comics writers in the industry today. And he said, I can't help you. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Um, that's what I got. That's a good story. But uh, so, so yeah, I, I basically, I, I kind of split it up into five issues immediately. I saw how it broke down into five pieces. It actually broke down into four pieces, but I, I wanted to break up the last one so that I could like really extend the action and have like a cliffhanger on four and then, and then really have just a ton of action just cause it sounded more fun. Um, so I did it that way. And then um, I, I kind of told them how it laid out. And then I just, I actually break it down page by page after that for each chunk I'm doing. I dog-eared my book, you know, first issue is like page one to page 120 and I dog-eared it there. And then I break down, I lay out each page and I, I, I give him the outline of each page and I say, do you approve this? Um, I think on the outline stage, he's been pretty, I think he made me change one scene so far and I've written four out of the five issues. So, um, so there wasn't, so I, I guess I did it to his liking. <laughs> it strikes <laughs> me yeah. that one of the things that people don't realize about media is that the form of the media the structure of the media has a much, much bigger impact on the content than you might assume. And I'm going to use an analogy here. Back in the days where all everybody had was long playing vinyl records, there was an art to designing an album. You had to start off the album with a great song to draw people in, and then you drop down in quality a little bit for, for the next two songs, and then the fourth song had to be so good that it made people want to flip the record over and hit and hear the rest of the album. Then yeah. you drop back for the next couple of songs uh, on the on the next album. You started good, drop back for the next couple of songs and finish great to make people want to tell their friends about it. So the form, the physical nature of an LP disc dictated how you designed an album. And it also uh, gave a lot of opportunities because it was so big, you had an opportunity to do cover art and things like that that you couldn't do in CDs and you can't do ever digitally. Um, it's a tragedy. Um, and there's a little story with that, but it's the, the, too much time. Um, and so to flip back to comics, 22 pages and then a hook for the next issue is right. how a traditional comic is done or the story's over. I mean, traditionally the story's over and you're on to a different story. But if you're having a continuing story like Shonen Jump Weekly or whatever, a manga, you would have a hook for the next issue. So people would want to come back and get back to it. Um, and so if you're doing a trade paperback, though, you you don't have to worry about that except keeping rich readers interested enough to move along. And so transitioning something from one medium to another is so difficult because you have to take something that ideally is finely tuned for this medium and change it for a completely different medium. Yeah, I planned on doing this. Uh, we, we, did, we weren't planning on doing an Indiegogo originally. We were planning on just going straight to Amazon because his, his market's all that Amazon algorithm goodness that all the indie authors talk about, right? And we were just going we to release it one month after another, just like, regular, like a regular comic book thing. So we designed it in that format, like you said, where you've got, you've got the, the kind of the arc and then like the last page or two is the hook and like lead in or cliffhanger for the next issue. So we definitely did that. And I, I've, uh, I, I'm good with that format because I've written so many issues of Flying Sparks at this point. I mean, my, I've written through, I think, 10 issues of Flying Sparks at this point. So, so I, I've definitely gotten that format down. Um, and so, so that's how we, were, we did it. We wrote it like it was going to be 
single issue comic books on the stands. Now, now the graphic novel is going to come out first, but it still works um, because uh, you know, he kind of broke it into acts like that because that's how, that's kind of how movies format themselves in, in those, in that like three or four or five part sort of setup. So uh, it, it'll, it'll make for a nice graphic novel and single issues. And that's, that's the goal at the end of the day. Um, well, we have got uh, just about 15 minutes left in the show. I know we started late. Um, Sorry. So maybe we My have 20 fault. minutes, 20 minutes late. Uh, maybe we have 20 minutes left. Um, and so I wanted to jump to the Indiegogo. Um, my thesis, and I have not seen anything to disprove it, and my own personal experience bears it out, is that the huge success that has been seen by many people on Indiegogo is great, and it's wonderful to see, and I encourage people to be as successful as possible. But I don't think that price-wise, convenience-wise, and uh, audience scope-wise, there is much future there. We mentioned earlier in the show of fatigue, um, but even if there isn't fatigue about Indiegogo itself, I'm sick of Kickstarter because when I make a promise to pay them in 30 days, I have no idea what my financial situation is going to be like in 30 days. Whereas with Indiegogo, I want to buy something. I put in the money right now. It takes the money right now, and then it goes on. And so I much prefer that to Kickstarter. But even so, I backed like 14 different Comicscape comics projects. And since I backed the last one, um, there has been 10 to 20 more come up. And I'm like, I can't do that at 25 or 35 bucks a pop. I just can't. I don't have physically that much money. And even if I did, I don't have that much time to read these things once I get them. And so what people have to look at is that what they should be looking at, and I know that Ethan Manskyver is, what they should be looking at is solving a distribution problem to get this into a place where normies can see it and want to buy it and are willing to buy it. And that's difficult with comics to do digitally. It's much easier to do in the physical store. And digitally, you have to work with a place like Comixology. You have to go through a whole lot of work laying out your comic for a different form again, different media that determines the form of the comic. You have to work with them to lay it out. And it's just, uh, it's a problem that I hope people in Comicsgate who are producers who want to keep on selling, who have staked their career on selling as an indie comic author, I hope they're looking at solving this problem or addressing this problem. Yeah, I 100% I agree with you on that. Um, there is a problem there. I mean, people bought into these Indiegogos to such a big thing uh, to make a political statement, really. They were trying to tell the comic industry, we don't like what you're doing, and we're going to go to these alternative comics, right? And um, it worked. The and it worked. Message sent. So uh, what happened was, you know, the first dozen or so creators got in there, and, it was, you know, every, everybody's still on board for the message. It's the first couple months. You know, people can back a few of these and, and be happy. And now now everybody's, been, you know, spent a couple hundred bucks and they don't have books yet. Um, and that's hard. Um, so the people who are coming in now and, and so, to some extent, this includes the Ember War. Um, you know, the, the books that are coming in now are, are saying, hey, John, we haven't gotten your last book yet. And you've already got a book yet up. And I'm like, well, I kind of got to because I've got business partners and this is really their project. Right. Um, and, uh, like Richard, Richard Fox wants his book out and I, I can't just delay it. So, um, there, there is that, but on the, on, I think, 
I think there's a twofold. There's fatigue of just not getting things. There, there are too many projects now. And so it's diluting everything and, and everybody can't back everything. And uh, everybody kind of made their statement on the statement end. So it is dropping back to just the people who want the comic uh, that they see online, you know, that that seems like it'll be something that fits them for a comic. So in some ways, it's getting back to, to what the core audience is. And a lot of people who don't have followings already couldn't ride this wave uh, easily. Um, so it's a, it's a weird different thing. But the comic Kickstarters have gone on forever and there's successful people on it, just like there are board games and all that. And you, I don't think there will be fatigue and a problem for people who have followings or are building followings. Um, you know, it'll be smaller. Um, and you'll be able to do it and you'll be able to do volume two or whatever. And people will, will probably come on board for that for the most part. Um, I think I think that natural version is there. I think the rush of a zillion projects at a time isn't going to be there. And so this is not a viable like alternative industry, but it is it is a viable business model for a few creators. Now, on the back end, we are actually working on things to make things cheaper and all that. Um, I, I, I don't know about some of these guys. I mean. Some of them, you know, the, the whole 48 pages for $25 plus shipping is, is really tough. And that's why I immediately went out with Flying Sparks, which was 66 pages with um, with a, with bonus content of, I think, uh, 14 pages. So it ended, ended up being about 80 pages um, of worth of comics for 25. And that's why I went out with the Ember War with 120 for, for 35, which is more standard graphic novel prices. Um, now, I've still got the shipping aspects to deal with because uh, you know i i'm not a big company with big print things and all that uh you know who can who can just ship ship out you know through diamond or whatever and it costs me nothing to do um you know marvel and dc have their their contracts and all that and even have have uh you know shipping contracts and all that that make things a lot cheaper and that's why they can keep their prices points at what they are but i'm working on that sort of thing um you know with with my printers and, and all that and I think at least next time I do Flying Sparks, I should be able to do it without a shipping cost on top of it, which lowers the price there uh, on that end. And we're working, we, we're working on it. So, um, and we're also, I'm, I'm going to be doing an Amazon strategy because I come from books first. So I'm, I'm going to be putting out my next book, which is going to be called Dynamite Thor, just on Amazon without an Indiegogo, without an Indiegogo to try to see, okay, does the market work here through Amazon like it does through books? Am I going to be able to do it on that end? So we're, we're going to be trying a lot of different things. It's the Wild West right now. I, just, I keep on thinking that what comic the Comicscape uh, people, what they need to do is they need to form their own sort of image. And, and that's going to be a problem because as soon as they make that big target and it's all all these people who've been made controversial by the psychopaths currently in the industry, they're going to be doing their best to make sure that their company doesn't get into any stores. Um, but uh, I don't, I don't see the, and then there's a the secondary problem that Marvel's killing off stores anyway. And so where do you go from there? But I don't, I yeah. don't see them being able to get, uh, you have to cross over into normie though. You have to cross over into a large, population if you want to keep on growing you want to keep um you know you want to keep getting bigger and bigger and getting paid you have to cross over into normie dub and and i don't see that's difficult without getting into stores i and, don't i i don't see stores as the end all be all anymore guys i i see comic stores going the way of the bookstore and i don't think there's anything that can be done to stop it 
personally, I, judging by the people who come in and get their uh, monthlies or weeklies, that may not be a bad thing. Ooh, that's painful. That's me. Oh, huge slam on comic book nerds everywhere. I can't. Uh, I can't say that. Those are my core audience, my friend. Oh, uh, um, in all seriousness, I was I, I was thinking along the same lines as Daddy Warpig. Not comic book stores, but uh, I was just in the supermarket the other day, and I looked at all the magazines on the on the shelf. You know, in the in the aisle where the the impulse buy aisle with the candy bars and stuff. And I remember uh, supermarkets and little stores used to have comics racks. You used to be able to get you know all the latest you know Marvel, DC, Image, whatever. They'd, they'd be up there. Uh, just on a rack for you to grab. Um, I don't know if that's viable anymore, but uh, what happened to that? Is it, can, can we not get into Walmarts or, or regular stores anymore? Does it have to be a specialty comic store? That's, that's the main issue. I, I think the specialty comic store is not going to be a, around in 10 years, guys. Um, it's just... Every comic that, store... I've seen and, and attended because uh, they often also host games. So they're because they can't make money. They've got, they've got maybe uh, a dozen people who, you know, they get their orders uh, pull list. That's what it's called. The pull list. They, they get, they, they come in and, and every week or every month they get their, their comics and they leave. And that's part of their core income. And then they have to supplement with gaming and stuff, right? None of these comic stores have survived ne- on comics alone. And nowadays, you can't even survive on comics and magic. You have to serve food and drink as well. If you're yeah, that's get, it. it's get, it's getting there, right? They're becoming they're becoming like lifestyle coffee shops in, in a way, you know. Um, and they're and that's very okay. popular around here in the Pacific Northwest. Let me tell you, that's totally okay to have, and that's totally okay to do. But I mean, for for authors and all that, it's like you know, I mean, I can I can say I love my indie bookstore down the street, and I try to buy from them as much as I do. Just, and I'm talking book books. Um, And, but, you know, my core business is Amazon still, you know, and it's going to be that way. And I think, I think, you know, there might be a different thing through comics, through Kickstarter a little bit. And, but I I think Amazon is the way to solve all the shipping and printing cost problems, you know, to make it more viable and uh, for people to actually just be able to buy something and read immediately also. So that's, that's, that's where I I see it having to go. And that that may not last. Uh, reading about rumors that, uh, and I don't know the facts of the business, but Amazon apparently gets a lot of their shipping subsidized. Uh, they taking advantage of generous prices of the U.S. Postal Service and and so on, to for their local shipments anyway. Uh, that may not even be a long term solution. That may be just a medium term solution. Totally. Um, I, I think that's true. And, and prices are going to come up at some point, uh, you know, when that gets addressed or dealt with. Um, but then, then they will be, then the prices will be at what they should be. I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's a tough thing just because the art for comics is so expensive because, and it has to be because these artists, you know, it takes, like I, I said, it takes two months for my artist to draw the lines for a book. It takes my colorist a month to do the colors for a book. So they, they have to sustain their income uh, that they have to have a month or two worth of income in order to, in order just to be able to do it. Right. I mean, so you, you have to, you have to price that in, then you have to price the full color printing in, then you have to price shipping in. So it's uh, you know, it's almost like costs have to come up on the indie level and, and people either got to go for it or, or don't. That may not be a terrible thing. I mean, I hate to say this, but uh, the harder it is to 
make a living on it. And, you know, the harder it is to churn out that that four color factory product with you know cheap art and easy storylines. Uh, you know, the more sort of fun, bespoke hobby comics we're going to get. I keep drawing parallels to the game industry because the the market's so similar. The stuff we see coming out of Kickstarter as far as uh, game quality, the quality of games isn't that much better. I'm looking at a box of Rising Sun right now, famous Kickstarter board game. And mechanics-wise, it's good. It's okay. Um, it's not not close to my favorite, but the production value is very high. It's a gorgeous box with handmade art, you know, nice paintings. It's got giant plastic miniatures, that sort of thing. You know what I'm saying? So... This is the um, same thing we're dealing with in, in indie books, though. I mean, if you go on Amazon, you know, there, there's a there's a full range of just like professionally done books, you know, people who really had no business being in the business and and put up something terrible. And, and then the, and then the production quality of the covers and all that, like are, you know, run that gambit also. So it's like you, you almost can't tell. Um, but you know what? You, you find a couple creators you really like. And you, or a couple board game designers, for example. There's there's the there's a guy who who runs Kickstarters constantly on, on for board games, um, and he's gotten bigger now to where he's getting real distribution at Target and stuff like that. It's called Red Raven Games, and you know his production quality is very high. His game designs are very high, and he was just an indie guy. So it's like you'll you'll find a couple that you like and you can support. I think, um, and as you as as you solidify in that, just like with books or whatever, you'll you'll have you'll have less room for new authors. It's just kind of is how it goes for your own personal budget, um, and then like, you'll just stick to what you got, right? I like it as as sort of a, that's an easier future to imagine, where instead of we go back to a big industry with big publishers and and, and distribution and things like that, uh, we go back to niches and 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 maybe star authors or star artists, that sort of thing. The comics have, have always had that sort of thing, but um, I got the impression that at least through the mid-century that that was more of a product of the sort of insular um, uh, nature of the industry. It was, it was, you know, the same two dozen guys were working on all these comics, you know, Kirby yeah, and all them. Definitely it was like that because the big publishers are, you know, they can only hire so many people and then they kind of hire each other's friends and now, now you can kind of get outside that. So it's like, I don't know. I mean, as an as a as a new artist or author, I mean, my, you really want to target younger people and see if see if they can grab get hooked on your books so that they kind of sustain with you. Um, you know, I mean, it's just it's just like any other artistic business. Interesting. All right. Well, we are almost out of time. Do you have any uh, last words before we kick off? Uh, yeah, please back the Ember War. Uh, we still need to get there. I think we crossed 16,000 today, so we only need 4,000 more to fund, uh, which I have, no, I, have no, uh, I have no illusion that we won't get there. I'm, pre- I'm very sure we'll get there, um, which is great. Um, but we have a lot of stretch goals. We planned uh, for a lot because we, we want this universe to continue. And, you know, Richard really wants to make all nine books in the series into a big, like, graphic novel collection so everybody can just read it in graphic novel form, which is very cool. And uh, we, we want to get there. So uh, help us out there. The Ember War is, um, he's, Richard calls it a Michael Bay movie with marginally better dialogue. <laughs> um, I, uh, I think he's much better than that. Um, personally, you know, that's kind of a self-deprecating thing, I think. 
but uh yeah i mean definitely there's a lot of lot of action a lot of explosions lots of alien fighting and there's also good characters and and i make sure to really if you know me and at all you know i'm very character focused and i like to draw out uh the character and people and so uh, if you like if you like what i do with dialogue and things like that and you like uh you know some cool action movies you'll like it and if of course if you like the ember war already uh this is going to be a very faithful adaptation and you'll love it Hey, right. that, that, that gives me a question to ask, uh, to follow up on that, on your characters. Uh, I still have I still have your uh, knight's training and uh, the fight for Islandia in my, um, in my queue to read. Uh, are your uh, other uh, real books on hold while you're knocking out these great comics? No, I've been doing, I'm, I'm, I'm going full pulp speed, guys. Uh, you influenced me in that. Uh, both of you guys, uh, Dornall and Daddy Warpig, you guys got me on that train, Jeffro, if you're still in the chat, I mean, I owe Jeffro Johnson everything. <laughs> he changed my whole perspective on the world. I'm just, I'm just plowing out ideas as fast as they come to me, um, and that's that's what I think, like was was what the pulp was about, and that's how you keep things exciting. So you you I shift things up, and I've got a bunch of different things I'm working on, just so I'm always excited about whatever I'm working on whenever I'm doing it. And uh, my steampunk book. The Fight for Rislandia just came out on Thursday, third number one new release in a row. Um, so that's churning along just as well. Um, my alt hero novel, I think, is going to drop in the next month or so, maybe in the next two months. And then I've got a short fiction collection probably I'll have before the end of the year. So I'm, I'm going same speed as books as I've always gone, and I'm doing comics on top of it. Great. That sounds amazing. Uh, anything else to say before you kick off, Darnell? Well, uh, thanks for coming on uh, and chatting with us, especially on relatively short notice. And uh, it's always good talking to you and Daddy Warpig. And uh, thanks to the chat, whom I haven't been able to join today because I'm not on the phone in the woods. Uh, so I hope everybody had a great time listening. And I'll uh, talk to you again next week. All right. Uh, thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been Geek Gab for Saturday, September 29th, 2018. Um, be sure to uh, click like, subscribe to the show if you haven't subscribed already. Click the little bell icon. Ring the bell as all the big YouTubers are now saying. Make sure to ring the bell so you get announcements about when we're going live and anything else we might happen to upload, which doesn't happen all that often, but it's possible. It's potential in the future, and if we do, it'll be something brand new, and you do not want to be left out. Oh, you can get us all over on YouTube at GeekGab, youtube.com slash GeekGab. But we are also available on SoundCloud.com. We're also available on the Google Play Store. And we are also available on the iTunes Store. So you can subscribe to this show on the device of your choice. Just do a search for GeekGab and you can get us on all of those platforms. Thanks for tuning in today, folks. We're signing off. We're heading out, but don't you worry, don't you fret, we will be back.